0: confidence really stems from things that you do that you get good at. It doesn't come from people just telling you that you're good at something. It comes from you knowing that you're good at something. And I encourage students to take the things that they like to do and get good at them by doing them over and over and over again.
1: Welcome to the Intuitive Woman Podcast with your host, Tina Conroy. Gain clarity, confidence, and trust in your inner wisdom. Explore spiritual topics, including intuition, healing, wellness, yoga, vibrant living, and more. Hey guys, Tina here. Always so grateful to be here with all of you and thank you for listening. If you're not, a member of my Facebook group, please go ahead and join us. It is the Intuitive Women Group on Facebook. We have so much fun. That's where the party kind of happens. On Friday, I do Live at 5, which is Facebook readings, intuitive readings, and we have lots of fun and connect. So if you're looking for a fun group, and want to connect spiritually for all many different topics. I talk about meditation, I talk about intuition, and we just talk about just keeping it real. So go ahead and join me at the Intuitive Women Facebook group. I have such a treat for you today. I have my very first male guest on the Intuitive Woman podcast, and his name is Randy Shane. He is a mentor and he is an author. He has just recently authored the book, 173 Pages Every College Student Must Read. Now I have to tell you that this isn't just your average book about students in college and what's going to happen. This conversation blew me away. I am a parent of two college-age students, one to graduate very soon. And the conversation that we had completely changed my thinking. It was a paradigm shift that every parent should read. So this book is not just for the student, it's for the parent as well. I wish I had this book when my children were 13 or 14 to guide them and to allow them to find their passions and find the things they enjoy. He has some really great experiences in the book. He talks about his experiences. He talks about some tactile ways to be looked at in employment, and just so many things that are just going to be eye-popping. So stay tuned. It is going to be a great conversation, and it's for everyone, parents and young adults. Hey, Randy, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing very well, Tina. Thank you for having me.
1: I'm so excited to have you, and I have to tell you that it is pretty cool having a man on my show because I've been having so many women, so this is this is a little bit of a different interview, and I know so many people are going to enjoy it. So I don't want to feel that I'm only single-sexed out, so we can talk to the man as well and be intuitive and passionate. So thank you so much for joining us on the Intuitive Woman podcast.
0: Well, thanks a lot again for having me, and hopefully I won't let down an entire gender uh, here. So we'll go from there.
1: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So what struck me the most to have you on is, yes, obviously you've written a phenomenal book, 173 pages, every college student must read, but it's more than that for me. And I believe for my listeners, because it's a passion and how a passion and a drive has taken You to writing the book and being able to be a mentor to so many, so many people. But before we even go there, I love to bring the listeners back. And of course, we talk a lot about spirituality and religion and just the character of who you are. So can you take us back a little bit of your upbringing and who you were then and how you were brought up and and kind of bring us to present day?
0: There's a couple of things that are important for me to get out there for people. And one is that uh, we grew up as the only Jewish family in a very Irish Catholic and Italian Catholic or Roman Catholic uh, area in New Jersey. And it's sort of a small town and, and all that came with that. And so part of my upbringing was kind of figuring out and navigating the idea of you're so different kind of thing. And so, one of the ways of dealing with that was through violence. Of course, that doesn't really last all that long. Occasionally, it had to happen. But more effective means was really to start to talk to people and convince them that although we believed in different things, our similarities far outweighed the things that were different. And especially, I can sort of remember back to elementary school having conversations about things like the difference between Hanukkah and Christmas. And assuring my friends that I certainly wished that I had Christmas because Hanukkah was to us sort of a minor holiday that happened to fall in December near Christmas. Right, so you know people kind of heard that and said, "Oh, it's not so scary then." And and before you knew it, I had mooched my way into family Christmases, which anyone who's listening who knows me knows that that's uh, stayed true uh, for me going forward as well as I'm um, a gigantic mooch when it comes to uh, family holiday food celebrations. And so at the time, that was one big thing, I think, that that uh, was important. The second piece was that we also didn't really fit in in the temple that we went to, which was two towns away, because once again, all those people knew one another, and we were the outsiders who didn't have any money, which I'm going to get to in a second. And so we sort of were outsiders in two different universes of where we spent most of our time, which... I would argue has actually been a very big both influence on who I am, and I think my siblings are the same way. And also a very sort of a positive way is we developed what people call now grit without knowing we had it. Right, like we just kind of knew that. Well, we're not that nervous or scared about most scenarios because we've dealt with things like paying the rent with your paperboy money. We've dealt with borrowing money from your family because, again, you couldn't pay rent. We dealt with the fact that my brother and sister and I were all in high school at the same time and, obviously, subsequently in college, while living in one bedroom that was 9 feet by 12 feet. So, when I introduced my kids 25 or 30 years later... I brought them over to that apartment complex and showed them where we stayed, they just couldn't really grasp it. They could not understand where we all slept. It just baffled them. And so for me, that was my childhood, but we didn't really know any different, right? I mean, it wasn't as if other people around us were living in the lap of luxury. So we just kind of got used to it and and handled it for what it was.
1: So I guess as you're saying this, it really built the character and created who you are today. You can look back now and so you're one of three? Yes. And built the character that who you are today working hard and this idea of maybe not fitting in, but being able to stand out, but also to blend and to work together. I mean, I know you, you're a very cohesive person. You are very giving and receiving and open to so many things. So it's, it's so interesting because you could have went the other way. You could have been very bitter and said, how dare these people or this group. So it's very nice to see the positive side of it.
0: Yes, I think the big thing For me, the biggest influence at that time, there were sort of two of them. One was that my father, while someone who worked extremely hard and wasn't really around every day or even every evening for dinners and so on, uh, still managed to teach me a couple of things that have always resonated. One of his big mantras was take responsibility for your actions. So, of course, that's become hackneyed. People have heard that before. But what he meant by it and what I've sort of taken by it is don't look to blame anybody else for your problems and don't look to sort of try to have every don't be a victim, basically. And when you're not a victim, when you don't act like a victim, that really imbues everything that you do that changes the way you see the world. And so what I've tried to do for myself. And then what I've tried to do for students that I work with 30 years later is to try to teach them that they actually have the power to change their circumstances. And again, I'm not talking about necessarily in the book, I don't really get into the huge concept, which is how do first generation students, first generation college students, how do they handle school? I don't get into that because that's That's for another book, right? And one day, maybe I'll I'll describe that too, but that's not what I'm getting at. What I'm Talking about are the people who are, don't necessarily have financial burdens, the kind that I had or the kind that other people have today, but who nonetheless are sort of going to school and just going through the motions. And what I try to teach them is it's not your teacher's fault or your school's fault or the career center's fault that you don't have a direction that's on you. But the good news is, is that means that's for you to fix and for you to address. If you take it step by step and we kind of go through a how to procedure in the book, it's actually not only possible, but it happens. It happens all the time. And so that was one of the things my father taught me, just this whole idea of of taking responsibility for your actions. The second thing that he taught me that always resonated was he never made a lot of money. He cut slip covers, which people today don't really even know what that means. But it's essentially those things that goes on top of your furniture in lieu of, say, upholstery or the plastic covers. And then when it gets dirty, you just take it off and you get another one. So he was something of an artisan. It's not that easy. I watched him do it. It's quite involved, all of the measuring and cutting and all of the rest of it. And again, the problem with it is it's not very financially lucrative. Still, he loved it. And he really, really got a lot out of it. And that was his message, both verbally as well as just what I observed, the sort of modeling that behavior was, you're going to spend your life working. Do you really want to do something that you either hate or at best are indifferent to? Doesn't make any sense. And so that was something I learned very early on and took with me throughout my career.
1: You know, it's very interesting you're saying that because... I think the percentage is extremely high, and I don't know it, and I can't quote it, that the majority of people are extremely unhappy in the profession and job that they're doing. And I feel like it's an epidemic. It's almost like something you just have to endure. There's so many people that are miserable and are going through their life and feel they have no choice. They have no... No change. They can't make a change and they continue doing what they don't want to do for a very, very long time. And you'll hear phrases like, it is what it is or what can I do? And, and things like that. And it feels like it's evolving even more and more. Or maybe I'm just in the, the age bracket that it just seems to be this grind, the going in and the doing the thing that you don't want to do. And each year is going by. And it's a very sad, equation and learning that from your dad and also it not being equated to money because a lot of people that love what they do, you would think that that would be, well, I love what I do and I'm making a great living, but he was getting by and for him doing what he could, but he loved what he did. So what a difference that is for you and your siblings to learn that at such a young age.
0: Yeah, there's no question. And I think when I hear you say that, I've heard as much as 80-20, meaning that 80% of people are what's called underemployed, which means they're in a job that's just not for them, or even a whole field that's not for them, which is even worse. And I look at that and think, if I can turn that around even a little bit. And perhaps I'm being too optimistic or cocky or something. But nonetheless, I'm not giving up until I give this a real go. I really don't want to see 22-year olds make that decision. I don't want to hear kids say, well, I'm going into accounting or finance or investment banking because it's the secure way to go. And that's what my parents think is a good idea. and They just want me to be secure and safe which is a valid concern. Are you really secure and safe when you do a job that you hate? I can tell you that first of all today, people don't keep jobs forever. You can lose your job just because your company goes out of business or in the case of lawyers, a practice, they just one part of the practice. suddenly they lose a big customer. So there is no real 100% guarantee that you have lifetime employment anyway. And secondly, is it really safe and secure to have a life where you go to work and it's just a slog and a grind, as you said? What is safe about that? The third part that I say to people is, what makes you think you'll be good at what you do if you hate it? I've only observed literally in the hundreds of people that I hired, uh, my company that I had founded, that we hired and trained and worked with over the course of two decades, I can think of only one person who was really good at our work who didn't like it. It's so rare, it's almost impossible to do. And so I try to teach people that as well, is that you get good at doing the things that you like, and then you do them over and over and over again, and then you see, do I love it or do is it not for me now? And if it turns out that you do love it, and by the way, one way of testing that is, would you do it for free? Not to suggest you should, but would you? And if you would, then the answer is, this is where you should be. And then you get good at it, and that's something you can sell. It doesn't mean that you can sell it for millions, but you can always make a living at that point. I I think of what I'm doing now, by the way, as an example for students. I try to explain to them that for the most part, I'm still volunteering when it comes to the coaching, the actual one-on-one coaching. And I've just decided that regardless, every interaction I have with students, regardless of whether I'm getting paid or not, I love it. And so I walk away thinking, why would I not do it? I'll just keep doing it and I'll figure out the monetary part later. Again, I'm not suggesting that a student who's 22 can do that, but the idea is similar.
1: So just to give us a little highlight, how did the book get birthed? So you had, I know you were in a company and a business and then now is the book. So take us just a little bit that thinking you're working, you're hiring people, you have your own business. And now when did the mentoring begin? Was it during that period or what was the transition from mentoring and this birth of, I want to do a book like this because this is so needed out there?
0: Sure. So I had started working after graduating college in 1987. In 1993, I founded this company with my colleague. We co-founded a background investigative firm doing the same thing we had done before. We really loved it. It was sort of a niche within a niche. And we built that business and in 2004, we sold it. We sold it primarily because my partner wanted to leave. I didn't though. So I stayed on and I didn't anticipate staying on as long as I did, but I stayed on for another 11 years, give or take. And around 2014 or 2015, I got approached by a woman from Rutgers, which is my alma mater, uh, as a side story. when I I told my father while preparing for college as a senior in high school that I wanted to go to Penn. And he said, you're going to Rutgers uh, because we lived in New Jersey and that was all we could afford. Basically, all we could afford meant we're going for free. And then I said, but I want to go to Penn. And he said, you didn't hear me. And so that was the end of that conversation. So here I am, it's 1993, we started this business, 2004, we've sold the business. I'm around 2015, this woman from Rutgers approaches me and says that they have a mentoring program through the School of Business, which the Undergraduate School of Business, and would I like to join? And After about four seconds, I said yes, and then I started. The problem was I didn't get any. All it was was an online portal. I didn't get anyone to sign up to be my mentee. I was a little disappointed about that, of course, because I thought I really this sounded very intriguing. So I ended up giving a speech at a business forum that all the business students have to attend. And at that point, I got approached by four students right away and asking me to be their mentor. And I hadn't even really known what a mentor was. I liken it to a coach. I guess some people think there's some differences. I see it very much like coaching. I do a lot of coaching for kids in basketball. It's just sort of natural for me. I like it. The thing that I found immediately was during that period of time from 2004 say to 2015 or 16 our company got bigger and bigger and bigger and I was kind of managing managers as opposed to training younger people. And while I loved that, and I still really enjoy that and I'm very close friends with a lot of the individuals It really did take me away from the thing I liked to do the best, which was to train the youngest people in what we did and being good at work and understanding how to ask questions and have good judgment and so on. And so I saw the mentoring as a way of getting back into that. And it actually was exactly that. That's pretty much it's been extremely rewarding. And so the transition really was. I started speaking with people in Port Washington about the fact that I was doing this at Rutgers and that I was working with four students. And the next thing you know, I had a lot of people saying, well, you know, my son or daughter is in school. They could really use that. Would you call them? And and before I know it, I had 15 people. At that point, I decided, you know what? This is really what I want to do. I'm not 100% sure how to monetize it. But because of the sale of the company, I have a little more leeway than other people do to to kind of pursue something that is really exactly what I'd like to do. And I feel like there's nothing left for me to learn in running this other business. Why am I here? And so I left. And so I'm full time devoted to this. And so and this being kind of mentoring students in school. And I think the big thing, Tina, just that I want to point out is that there are plenty of services to help kids get from high school to college. And all of those are important and they're useful. We use a wonderful woman here in town, Paula Whitman, to help our youngest son do his applications uh, and his essays. And we've used private prep for tutoring and so on. And I'm a big fan of all of that. Obviously, again, if you can afford it. That said, As parents who have some means, we'll spend tons of money on soccer lessons and music lessons and ACT prep and essay prep and college counseling and all the rest of it to get kids into school. And then we drop them off through the gates and we let them go. And I look at that and I think, and as I started working with college students, it's plainly evident that that's entirely backwards, that this idea that they're going to go to college and come out this this kind of job machine who knows exactly what they want to do and feels good about themselves and is ready to go and be a, a great employee is nonsense. There was a survey done of business executives, and I mentioned this in the book, where they asked them how many of you believe that the typical college student is ready to work, and the answer was eleven percent.
1: Wow! Wow! Yeah, not,
0: not yeah, eleven. So when you when you hear that, and then I couple that experience with my own experience of hiring people and realizing that they just didn't have the skills that we were looking for, oftentimes, and we basically started to have to hire people who were 25 or 26, in a lot of instances, because it was very difficult to get a 22-year-old who had the maturity to understand what it was that we were asking them to do. And I don't mean hard skills here. We're not looking for, and I don't think most businesses that are not, say, engineers or accountants or other sort of science majors. We're talking about people who are liberal arts students going for, say, liberal artsy type jobs. You get taught what the company does. That they teach you. But they can't really teach you to write or to speak in public or to work effectively on a team or to have good judgment or to understand how to sell both yourself and a product. These are not things that a company has time to teach you to do. That's something that you have to bring with you. And those kind of transferable skills are the things that I'm trying to teach all college students to have because I believe it makes you both employable wherever you want, one, and two, confident. And that's the thing. The idea that confidence really stems from things that you do that you get good at. It doesn't come from people just telling you that you're good at something. It comes from you knowing that you're good at something. And I encourage students to take the things that they like to do and get good at them by doing them over and over and over again.
1: So this may be opening up a can of worms, but as you're talking, I'm thinking, do you think that clearly there's an education process or the college process is sort of failing these kids, right? Do you think that the times have changed where you went to college and you came out and you wore, it wasn't 11% getting the job and now it's changed? Or do you think that it was always that way? Do you know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, I do. I would say that the answer is a little of both. So I do think that 30 years ago, because of the way we were raised, that we naturally more kids came out of school a little more prepared to work, because most of us had jobs and crappy jobs, right? The lifeguarding, the the newspaper boy, the working at the deli, like all of those kinds of jobs, which Unfortunately, for many students these days, a lot of those jobs aren't available, one, they're they're taken up by adults, and two, there's this push for an internship, an internship, everything is an internship. So, that's a little bit of it. I also think that the competition was a lot less. So, nowadays, there's something like a million more students have graduated in an average year today than were 30 years ago. So, even if kids are relatively prepared There's too many of them. And so you have to be more than just that. So students go into school and they're a little bit less prepared to succeed than we were because, again, they haven't worked as much and they've been raised a little bit differently. This is the generation of safety and security, as we mentioned before. But then in addition to that, they get to college and what they've learned, and you'll hear this from professors all the time, and Frank Bruni talks about this in his book as well, is that students have been taught that the most important thing is to get in. And that's what they repeat throughout college. So meaning that if you get good grades and you get good test scores, you do get into a good college. So they are rewarded for that behavior. And they then go on to think that if as long as they replicate that, they'll be fine. And the problem is that's not fine. That isn't going to cut it. Very few employers will ask, and students are astonished to hear this, I've never asked someone what their GPA was, and I don't care. We actually don't even care where they went to school for the most part. And I know that people will criticize me for this. They're going to say, oh, well, if you went to Harvard, you know, it still stands out. Of course, I'm not saying that. And of course, if you go to a school that no one's ever heard of, it's probably going to be a little bit harder for you. By the same token, I work with schools that are not considered to be the most rigorous academically. And I work with students at those schools and I would hire almost every one of them immediately because they're learning actual skills as I just mentioned. They're learning that resilience and being resourceful and understanding that they have to learn how to speak in public and how to write and how to work with people that are not like them, as opposed to, say, just hanging out with the kids from Jericho and then wondering why later on when you're working with women and with black people and Spanish people and white people and Jewish and non-Jewish and so on, and you can't get along with them because you just have never done that before. College is supposed to be the time that you get a chance to test all those and try all those things in a relatively secure environment. I feel like when you say colleges are failing the students, I kind of think that the only reason colleges are failing is that they're not being completely honest about the limitations of what they're offering, because parents want to believe that colleges are making our kids hyper prepared for work. And that's not really what they do or what even what they're set up to do. What kids need to take that themselves, it's there. They can get it at college. There's no question, but it's not just in class. It's everywhere. It's every experience that they have. It's clubs, it's intramurals, it's classes, it's jobs, it's working with professors, talking with other students that are older than you. It's all of those kinds of things. Those are the experiences that form you and make you into someone who's employable. The college can't walk you through that. And just getting good grades isn't good enough.
1: I'm thinking back to both when my children were juniors, seniors in high school, and it was all about where they got in. I mean, the pressure for these kids, oh, this one got here and this one got into here and whatever. It was so intense for that one year, or I don't know how many months, it seemed like that long period of time. And I hear what you're saying. Obviously, if you went to Harvard or some of the really top Ivy A lot of big companies will say we're only looking at Harvard and Yale and Brown and I don't even know, I can't even rattle them off, UPenn, whatever, and and a bunch of other ones. I'm not saying not, but I hear what you're saying. That doesn't mean that the college that or the university that's not a no-name but not a big name doesn't mean that employers we'll look at them as well. I'm hoping that's the case. And I and I feel like a lot that you're talking about is character and these other things that you're able to bring to people through the book and then through your mentoring. Now, I kind of want to talk about the book in two ways, because I find it can be perceived and read by the parent and then also the student. So, can you take one side of that and then we'll go to the next side? How would you Explain the book or guide a student for the book versus the parent.
0: The book is really written exactly as you just said. It's actually written for both parents and for students. I'm not naive. I work with students all the time. I don't expect that a freshman in college or a senior in high school about to enter college will (laughs) or should read the book cover to cover. It's not a novel, right? It's really more of a guide. So it's almost something for a student. The way I look at it is read the first few chapters because the book is chronological. It's kind of taking you from freshman year through. So you don't really need to necessarily read chapter 13 right away because that's talking about uh, internships and how to interview for an internship junior year of college. I don't think you really need to know that before you start. So that was one part of it. For the parents, the way I look at it is they may read the whole thing from cover to cover simply because it's not that long. It's written in a very conversational style. So I have people who tell me that when they read it, they can actually hear my voice. It's as if we're talking. And so I wanted to make sure that it is written in that way. And I tried to insert some some humor and things like that to kind of and tell as many stories as possible to keep it interesting so that when and a parent reads it, they can say, hmm, I hadn't ever thought about it that way. But now that I think about it that way, that makes a lot of sense. And this now inspires a conversation with my son or daughter in a way that I wasn't about to have. So that's part of it. That's sort of how it's written. The other piece to understand is it's, it's a huge how-to as opposed to a why or a what. So what I mean by that is, Everyone gives advice by saying, well, you know, this is what you have to do and here's why. And that's great, except for one thing. When I say to somebody, find your passion, for example, the first thing they look at me is they're like uh, scared, couldn't be more scared because they think, "I, don't, what am I is it like a leprechaun? Like, a, is it a four-leaf clover? Like, what, what do you mean find it? How do I go out and find it? And if I don't have it and I can't find it, I'm getting anxious, right? Like when you can't find your keys or your wallet. That's the problem. So, what I've tried to overcome that problem is through the use of how to do things. So, if I'm going to say find a passion, I devote a whole section where I describe research, which indicates if you think of it more like developing or fostering a passion, where you try things that you like and then you keep doing them until you determine whether there's something that you really love. That's how a passion and a skill set comes to fore. It's not from just discovering it. You discover it through work, through actually doing it, except unlike work that you don't wanna do, the big upside to finding a passion is it starts with things that you like. So it's not someone saying, go ahead and try accounting. You might just like it. Sure, that's great, but why don't you start with the thing you already think that you like? Maybe it's economics, maybe it's political science, maybe it's psychology, whatever. Go join a club, talk to your professor about it more. And then the more you do, the more you decide by nature. Is this something I could see myself doing all the time, or am I already sick of it? So that's the kind of conversations that I want to start with parents is reading this, understanding that there are methods to actually achieving these goals, and that you, the parent, can help your student achieve these goals by giving them actual steps to take. And that's a very big difference from saying, you better do something this summer. You're not gonna just sit around and and you know play Xbox. Like, OK, <laughs> like sure, that's true. But like, what should the person do? And Tina, I cannot tell you how many times I hear people say, oh, I got this internship. And I say, well, what is it? Oh, it's uh, I'm going to be working in a business office with my father's friend. And it's just to get experience and put it on a resume. That's all that counts. And then I look and I say, well, where are you hearing that? Who's telling you that is every person who's 50 years old who believes that a resume, a resume, a resume, that's all that counts, and here I am coming at it from the opposite perspective saying to you, I have interviewed thousands of people. And I can tell you that if I ask you a question based on your resume and I say, what what is this internship that you cited and you say it was your uncle's company and all you did was get coffee or sit there all day uh, waiting for somebody to tell you what to do. I've not only dismissed that internship, but I've pretty much dismissed you as a candidate for a job because I know that you're the type of person who looks to put things down to make themselves look better when in actuality you're kind of lying. Uh, and that's a little harsh, but that's the way that a lot of people view it. It's a really not a good idea. And it's something that I like parents to sort of recognize that a lot of the things that they think are myths that I'm trying to debunk, that I'm trying to show the things that you think about your son and daughter getting a job are simply not true. So once we've decided and agreed that those aren't true, now we can start fresh and determine what can we do to help these students figure out what it is that they might be good at and thus that they make money at and actually enjoy doing. What are those things? That's what I'm trying to get to.
1: And you know, it's so interesting as I'm talking to you, and I'm a parent of two college students. My son will graduate next Friday from Stony Brook.
0: Oh, congratulations.
1: Thank you. My daughter just finished her sophomore year at Iona. We have been taught or from our upbringing that there is a certain way. And I think that this is going to create a huge shift because so many parents really truly believe the other way, whatever the other way is, the way that I think. So as you're talking to me, I'm going, there's probably a lot of parents out there that are still going to be stuck in their way and fight you on it or not agree with you. But the ones that can truly adopt it, and absorb it and understand it, they're gonna be that much better a parent to help their children and guide them and facilitate them for the position and for the job. Because I think that being the age, so I'm 49, right? So that that age group, and we were told you go here and you do this and then you get a job and your resume and you have to look really good and have a lot of I mean, even as I'm talking to you, it's like, that's what I know. I don't know any different. And it's just so refreshing to hear you say, there's a different way. If the parents can adopt that, wow, like what a change, what a shift. So, I mean, this book is breaking ground. It's so beyond the how to and the to do. I see it in such a different way and every parent should get their hand on it when their children are in high school and going through this process and coming close to that period of time, because it's going to make a shift, and you would hope that it would make the shift, because if it can make the shift, it can really help these young adults have direction.
0: Yeah, no question. And the interesting thing that you just mentioned is is that, and I haven't marketed it this way, but I agree with you, I, I actually think parents should be reading it when they have a kid who's 14, right? I mean, it's not meant for that. But when you read it and you think of it that way, you can eliminate a lot of the angst that goes along with they're in high school and the goal is to get them into the best college possible. And then the goal after that is to get them into the highest paid job possible or any job. Instead, if you think of it as, well, if the goal is to get them into a college that fits them then we don't really need to stack their resume in high school with all of the stuff that is kind of phony, baloney nonsense. Or even if it is real, is not something that they actually want to do. And then if the goal in college is to get them to find what they might want to do, then we, again – don't need to stack their resume with a bunch of stuff that they don't want to do, that they don't even want to talk about, and or that's simply not real, then it shifts again, how we think about these, say, eight years of teenage years and young adulthood. I would give an example about that. And that is one of the things that I notice at work, and I notice it in all of the businesses that I have consulted with over time as well, is that particularly effective employee is the one who understands even how to point out a problem and to ask a question about a problem. So specifically, you have some employees who don't even know that there is a problem. So obviously that in and of itself is not very good. Then you have the second group Who point out problems, but never point out solutions, either because they just don't know what the solutions are at all, or they're too nervous to present a potential solution. So they go to the boss and say, hey, look, I noticed this and we couldn't get this done. What do you think we should do now as a boss? I can tell you what I hear when that happens is now I got to do this myself. Like, what do I have this person for if I needed to do this job myself? I wouldn't hire you. That's why I have you here. And so what I teach people, even people who are 30 or 40, whatever, is if you're at a job and you sense that something could be done differently or is it, or is a problem, but you're not sure of your solution, present your solution and flag it and say, look, I think this is the way we could do it. But I want your sign off on this because you have more experience than I do. Now, all I have to do is the boss to say yes or no. That's great. Now I know that you have judgment. I know that you've spent some time on something and you've thought it through. And I know that you've presented me as an option in a kind of a cogent way. That person is always somebody that I want on staff. I want 100 people like that. And that can be taught and that gets taught and can and should get taught. In college, that's the kind of thing that you can learn is how to present a possible solution. So if you're working on a group project in college and and some of the people aren't pulling their weight or whatever, well, instead of bitching and moaning about that, take it upon yourself to try to fix it and use different techniques and see which ones work and which ones don't. And then you'll continue until you kind of find the style that works best for you. But that's just not something that I think people talk about a lot because they would rather talk about sticking something on a resume, which, as you mentioned, is all we know. And I'm trying to kind of teach people that the all we know thing just doesn't apply anymore. Um, The economy is very different. There are plenty of candidates available. It's not quite like it used to be, where as long as you had a pulse, you could get a job. And once you graduated from college from any basically decent institution, it's just not like that anymore. It is harder for students. It's not quite as easy for them coming out. So they're going to need to be better than we had to be.
1: Randy, this conversation can go on and on, and I'm I'm just loving it. I'm loving the the perspective of the parent and exactly how I'm changing my thinking. And probably so many people that are going to listen to this episode, as well as the young adults. And I like that idea that you said that. I mean, how perfect is that? The 14-year-old, you know, I'm already was thinking too old. So get them in the hands of the 14-year-old and the parents then so that we're not going through all this process. And and again, as all well, the listeners are thinking, we're not saying that Getting into a good college isn't good. We're not saying that at all, but it's a different philosophy, and you've made me think differently. I know there's so many people that want to connect with you, so how can people reach you? Because I know there's a lot of people out there. I have a lot of people in my social circle that have young adults, and some of them are junior, seniors, happen to be junior and seniors in high school, that would like to work with you and mentor and we'll talk offline. I'll give you some of their information, but where can the listeners contact you about the book and then also work with you? I'm sure you could do mentoring. doesn't have to be face-to-face right now with Skype or I'm sure phone calls. So how can people reach you? Because this is very valuable.
0: Sure. So the easiest way, the, the website is one On Facebook, it's one-on-one college mentors. My email address is randy at mentorscom And those are all easy ways to reach me. And as you've said, the forms of communication today are so open that one does not need to be sitting down across the room with another person to have an impact. And so absolutely that helps. And I do meet, with all of the people that I mentor periodically, whether it's when they're home, if they happen to be from Port Washington, or at times I just go to the schools where I happen to have accumulated a number of students and I kind of make a day of it, which by the way are always my favorite days and my wife kind of laughs at me because I I come home, it's like 10 o'clock at night, I'm all bedraggled, but I can't wait to tell her about how I met with five students in a row and gave a speech and the whole thing and I still, I would meet with more on the way home if I could, but when you add things like Skype, When you add text, when you add email, when you add regular phone calls, that's how you stay in touch. And You'd be surprised. You don't always need to just set a time to have lunch. That's more of an adult thing. Kids are perfectly happy, believe it or not, still perfectly happy to talk on the phone about something like this. They're not necessarily going to pick up their phone for a friend saying, hey, what are you doing tonight? That never happens, right? Right. They don't have voicemail set up, so it's not like that either. It's more like through email and text, hey, when can you talk? Oh, how about tomorrow? Or I need to talk to you about this interview that I'm doing, or I have to submit this application, and I'm not sure how to word this. Can you talk? that's how it works like it's a lot of both regular and episodic and so i just kind of make myself available whenever they need me it's not really any one set thing
1: and everyone i just want to repeat the book again it's going to be in the show notes but 173 pages every college student must read and randy it's really enlightened me and it has changed my thinking and i know there's so many people out there that need to get a hold of this book. They would love their children to be able to connect with you and mentor with you. So thank you for bringing this about and really connecting to your passion and doing this because this is a shift. This is not just a book. This is a shift. This is something that is very, very well needed. So thank you for birthing the book and for all that you do.
0: Well, thank you very much. And again, the book is available on Amazon, too. So that is an easy way of purchasing it. And I appreciate you saying the shift comment because it's it's certainly something that I've thought of. And as I think I've mentioned to you and to others, and I mentioned earlier on this conversation, I really would like to believe that the students that are going to college who are not right now making the most of that experience, which unfortunately, what I see is that's a lot of them, that I can turn that around and that we can change the way students approach college, that they go in not scared and or just partying, which again, there's a huge place for that, but that they understand that there's a balance between that social aspect of school and the kind of learning that should and could take place. That's all for them. And so if I can convince any student at any time that this is really for them, that this is not another adult just telling them what to do, that instead this is someone who's saying, look, I get it. I'm with you. I understand. I'm trying to get you to see now that if you're active in your life and you're present in what you do, as opposed to just being there, then you will reap the rewards of that it's totally worth it even if you do that kind of stuff for only a few minutes a day it's really not all that dissimilar from some of the things that you do otherwise the from the yoga to the meditation and so on this is kind of like that devote a few minutes a day to it you'll be way better off if you devote an hour a day even better and so on
1: I love it. So before we wrap, I always ask most of my guests the intuition question. So I know I told you it was going to come. So what does intuition mean to you?
0: So to me, I know what the definition of intuition is, that one understands something immediately and it doesn't require conscious reasoning, I guess, is a way of thinking it. I get that that's the definition, but where I diverge from most people, I think, is that I think intuition itself can be taught and can be learned, and I believe that the intuition that I have, the way I can read a college student and understand in between 15 and 30 minutes what that person's like and what they're interested in, has to do with experience, one of dealing with hundreds and hundreds of them from two different sides of the equation, but also from huge amounts of listening. And I really believe very firmly that that's how you learn things is you listen and you don't go in thinking, I'm just going to tell this person what to do. You go in thinking, I want to find out what they're all about. And if I listen, I'm confident that my intuition will now kick in because I've listened to so much of this that I don't have to recreate it in my mind, I kind of have heard the story before. And that is, I guess, somewhat augmented by, of course, having a high EQ, meaning being able to relate to people. But even that gets honed with experience, and with the desire to relate to people. And so I feel very strongly that intuition is something that can get stronger and better. It's not just a gift that we all have, and you either, you just kind of have it. Your intuition gets better by working at it. I don't know if uh, if people agree with that, but that's my take on it.
1: I love that. And I say that often. I say that everybody has intuition, but it's a muscle. And just like you go to the gym or you work out, if you develop the muscle, it will get stronger and it will work for you. And if you do not, it won't. So it's sort of like do the work, work at it. And you're right. It gets stronger. So, well, thank you so much. This has been an amazing insight for me and obviously I'm going to pass it on. And for both my children who are 23 and 19 that are really right in this ripe stage and thank you for all you do. I'm so grateful that you were able to be a guest on the show. Well,
0: I'm grateful for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And again, any listener who does want to reach me, we've given out that information and you can give it out as well. So I'm very happy to speak with anyone about this topic. As as you can tell, I have two things. One is I really love this topic and two, I like to blab. Uh, so <laughs> I, I don't mind talking about it with anyone and I do like to listen as well. So thanks, Tina. Appreciate your time.
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, you have a fantastic day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye now.